0: What's up church family? Everybody good? Oh, yeah. Dude, man, our worship team brought it on that last song, boy. I was like, I was I was singing so loud. There was one point where we were doing like the oohs and ahs, I don't know what you call it, and my voice cracked. I felt like a teenager again. so. uh, But it is so good to see you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It comes right after Ezekiel. Um, In my Bible, it's on page 737. So good luck. All right. Um, But we're we're kicking off a brand new series Uh, today. We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel over the next six weeks, walking through this. And, um, you know, it's always hard to, to really preach and to dig in the very first week, because especially in the Old Testament, there's so much historical context and background for us to really understand. And so today, the message is a little bit different. So if you're looking at like three points of like great application, I mean, it does, there is application, okay? But um, it's going to be a little bit different because it really needs to set up where we're going and what we're looking at in the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is probably one of the most popular characters um, in in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. And in the Bible Belt of the South, um, you probably think of, or some of you might, when you hear the name Daniel, you think of Daniel in the lion's den, um, or maybe around the fiery furnace, Of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Some of you on the other spectrum, you might know of some of the prophecy of Daniel. Um, Some commentaries or scholars say that the book of Daniel is really kind of the book of Revelation for the Old uh, Old Testament. It's kind of a book um, of apocalyptic literature, if you will, in some sorts. Um, But um, or maybe some of you, if you're a little bit younger generation, you just think of VeggieTales, okay? And you think of some Daniel song, you know, um, anything like that. Well, my hope is uh, it's going to be a little bit different because it is a hard message today. It, it, it can be one that we look at and be like, okay, this is really heavy. Um, it's, it can be discouraging. But I want you to be reminded that even what we're going to look at Today, that our hope is something, is in something, or should be as believers in something much greater than the world that we live in. And the things that we encounter, that we believe and we trust in a God who has all things under his control. He is all things, and to him are all things. And so, even in the midst of chaos and confusion, that as a believer, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to see is oftentimes, and this might take like just a perspective shift on the book of Daniel, it can be easy. I even remember, I didn't even grow up in church, but I remember when I was in student ministry, starting to go to church um, in, in my ninth grade year, you hear about Daniel and kind of this premise or this This idea of the book of Daniel is kind of sold as, hey, if you have great faith in Jesus and you do the right thing, that he will protect you. And he is faithful and he'll deliver you from evil and you won't have any harm. That is a false pretense of the book of Daniel and just life as a believer. There's nowhere in scripture that says if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have an easy, posh, bougie life and not face suffering. You look at Stephen, who was one of the most faithful people in the New Testament, and he was stoned to death. And so that is a false pretense for us to see the adventures of Daniel in the lion's den and be like, God will protect me through everything. That, you know, the fire won't burn me and the lions won't eat me and it's going to be good. That's some prosperity gospel that we don't preach here. And so what we're going to see over the next six weeks is that Daniel actually is a model, an example of how do we not only survive in a broken, chaotic, messed up world, but how do we thrive? How do we stand... If you are a believer for the things that are of God, how do you not get discouraged and actually grow and mature in your faith? And, and so the next six weeks, I, just, I challenge you not to miss. Uh, I'm going to kind of leave you at a little cliffhanger um, um, this morning. But I think it's so important because it's such a great example of the reality that we are in. So there's going to be a lot of context, a lot of background today. But let me set this up. You don't need me to share this with you. We live in a world that has gone nuts, <laughs> you know? And, and I know there's all kinds of definitions, and we can point fingers at a lot of different things. And, but to be honest, we're all a part of the problem. And um, ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, as sin entered into the world... Um, the moral fabric of the culture that we live in and across the world is decaying at breakneck speed. Is that right? Okay. It's it's decaying quickly. Okay. Let's just say that. All right. It's going downhill really, really bad. And as much as I love America, and we talked about this last week, that in some ways I have a tendency to feel like America is leading the way in this decay. And something that We see things in life that were once hidden shamefully are now publicly celebrated or things that were just not talked about um, as taboo are now brought to the surface. And if you don't agree with them, you're narrow minded and intolerant or things that were previously unimaginable are now commonplace. And and I'm not just talking about things that are outside the walls of the church because the culture that we live in, those things do creep in to the walls of the church where even people who claim Christ and are Christian um, uh, uh, walk um, with Christ and are Christ followers, think about this, our Christian theology in some regards has turned to more of just, instead of being based on God's word, it's just a philosophical approach to life just another way. Or even as Christians, that we, the, the Enneagram carries more weight in what number we are and the people around us than the Word of God. And that is not a great place to be. And so here we are in this tension of our life that if you are a follower of Jesus, how do we survive and thrive in the brokenness? Now, hear, hear me out. None of us are perfect. We are all broken We all have mistakes and imperfections and flaws. But yet our hope and our desire that even in that brokenness, that we should all be chasing every single day to be more like Jesus. And so is that a part of us? Is that all of us? And what we're going to see in the book of Daniel brings some context, brings some application is what I want you to see is, is discouraging as it is is that we are Babylon. We are a culture, a society, and a world that puts other things before God. And so we look at Daniel, and he offers this model that he found a way in one of the most godless environments of how to serve and to stand and to glorify God above all things. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you're there. Daniel chapter one. Now, Daniel, the book of Daniel, this happens roughly around 600 B.C. Um, From beginning to end, the book of Daniel, um, he writes. um, And actually, there's parts that Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, he actually writes some things in this. But the book of Daniel happens of a time span of about 70 years. All right. And so um, let's read this. We're going to read the first eight verses, um, actually not, let me do, I guess, yeah, eight verses together, and then um, and we'll kind of break it down and kind of talk through some things, and, um, and hopefully um, you can see where we're going um, in this series. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, back to Babylon, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, Use without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That was the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back to the rest of the chapter in just a second. If you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down, it'll be on the screen, is that you will be pushed to compromise. So in the world that we live in, current Babylon, We will be pushed to compromise in our faith. We will be pushed. We will be shamed. We will be um, tempted to compromise in our relationship with God. So let me kind of bring some historical context here. King Nebuchadnezzar besieged, I can't speak this morning, sorry, not enough coffee. He besieged Jerusalem. And when he took it, he forced all of the Jews to come to Babylon, about 900 miles away, modern day Iraq. And as he did, he said, you're gonna live like us, you're gonna learn like us, you're gonna speak like us, you're gonna do life like us. And some of those were these, these four young men and he brings them into captivity and this servant of the, um, the chief uh, of the um, Enoch's came and said, here are the, the wisest, sharpest, smartest guys of all Jerusalem. These four young guys, roughly around 15 or 16 years old. And he brings them before the king. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he reigns for about 20 years in this. And his name, actually, in ancient Babylonian language of the Chaldeans, um, is actually, I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but is Nabu-Kaduri-Utzer which actually means Nabu protects the crown. Nabu was a false god. He was a pagan god. And so you see King Nebuchadnezzar takes the, uh, the Jews captive, especially these four young men, brings them to Babylon and says, hey, listen, you're going to be indoctrinated with the way that everything goes in this land. So takes them away, 900 miles away from their homeland, away from all their friends and family, and says, you're going to be in the king's palace. This is how you're going to live. This is what you're going to do. All of these different things. He was pushed to be, um, to be compromised in their faith. But what we see in verse um, 8, it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So Daniel, in the midst of this crazy chaos and culture coming in, he could have said, my head's going to be on a platter, but yet he says, I'm going to stand firm. Even though I'm pushed and tempted to live like they did in this godless environment, I'm going to stand for my customs and the God that I serve. And he resolves not to bend into that temptation in this new environment. And here's where it applies to you and I in so many different ways. Every single one of us will be and are confronted with an ever-pressing temptation to become just like our culture wants us to become. Every day at your jobs, even in your families, on TV, we see this pressure to become just like the world. And we are faced with a tension every single day. Are we going to be the world's or are we going to be the Lord's? Are we going to be more loyal to a world that is broken and lost and confused? Or are we going to be loyal to Jesus? Who shapes us, who influences us, who directs our paths in this? And Daniel, he says under conviction and he wanted to honor and please God over the temptation of fear and to please man. And the the hard reality is for each of us, and I'm not exempt from this either, is that it's easy to get seduced by our culture. It's easy to say, hey, if you do this, you'll be successful. If you have this, you'll be liked. If you wear this, you'll fit in. If you have this many friends, if you, do th- you buy this house and you drive this car and you do this as a career, if this is how you parent, your kids will like you, they'll be your friend and you'll be the best parent. All these different things. This is a domino effect. And, and here's the problem is that when Christians end up compromising, acting like the world, talking like the world, uh, and there's no difference, we render ourselves ineffective to changing and drawing people to the kingdom of God. When we look and act like everybody else, why would anybody want to become a Christian? Why would anybody want to worship the God? We talk about life change and and we celebrate baptism, but there is no difference. Why would anybody want to follow that? God calls us to stand up for truth. That's what Daniel does. And this one verse is so powerful that he resists the cultural pull and says, I'm not going to compromise. And here, here's just a note just so I can be thinking. The beauty of Daniel is that he lived in Babylon, but he never allowed Babylon to live in him. He said, I'm going to live for God and God's going to live in me. And while I might be in this world, I'm not going to be of this world. And what I love about the book of Daniel from beginning to end, in the 70-year time frame, from the age of 15 to when he's drawing Social Security in Babylon, <laughs> you know, he is faithful to God. He does not compromise. You're going to see us unpack that in the weeks ahead. Even when this pool is so great, he never wavered. He was faithful. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to see in Daniel's life. And so you and I, the reality is we're going to be pushed to compromise in our life. The second point, and there's a lot to this to unpack but the progression is, is that compromise will push you to commit to what doesn't matter. When you compromise in your faith, when you compromise in the word of God and you let things creep in, you begin to justify sin. And it is a domino effect that then what, be, what happens is that you begin to commit to things that have absolutely no eternal value, no eternal impact outside of heaven that you just think that you kind of have this narrow mind that here on this earth, I'm going to have all this impact and it's on things that do not matter. Here's what's interesting historically. The Babylonians, they defeated the Assyrians and then they um, seized Jerusalem. And the Babylonians were different than the Assyrians. If you know anything about history, this is kind of geeking me. The Assyrians were ruthless, right? They were brutal. And when they came in, this is how they waged war. They would conquer a city. They would rape all the women. They would make all the children slaves. Then they would kill all the men. And when they killed all the men, it wasn't just stabbing them in the heart. They would fillet them. And in some commentaries, two different commentaries that I read, that there's been proof that when they fillet them and skin the men, they're so brutal, they would use their hide the men's flesh as wallpaper in their homes. Brutal. So you can imagine as the Babylonians come in, the Jews are like, oh gosh, not again. But the Babylonians were a little bit different, a lot different. While I'm sure there was some some brutality, their main tactic was seduction. They said, okay, if we get them into the, the land of Babylon, they'll love this place. They'll start to talk like us and look like us. They'll be so seduced by what we have to offer and the gods that we worship and and the plethora of the food and the way the the buildings are structured and everything that there's no way that they would turn away from this. Even the ones who are pushed out of their homeland, they'll come and say, there's no way I'm going back. They would seduce individuals. So much so they they, um, redirected the Euphrates River to form really a moat around Babylon. So it would produce incredible palm trees and plants and vegetation and all those things. Then they redirected it as well to go throughout the city of Babylon for farming, but also to feed this huge pyramid-like structure called a ziggurat that is like has different terraces. You probably have seen this in your books or maybe you remember it from school. And every level of this pyramid-like structure had beautiful plants and gardens. You probably have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Beautiful place. And their hope was that people would come to Babylon. They would see it. I mean, it's like ancient Disney World. <laughs> they like smell the cotton candy and the popcorn. You see the guy wearing the shirt says, "I'm here for the treats," you know? That'd be me. All right. And they come in, and you hear they're singing, it's a small, small Babylonian world after all, you know, and they'll have the weird little puppet things. Oh, yeah, it's a smile. I'm like, oh, that's creepy, all right? <laughs> but they walk in, and they're like, man, I love this place. That was their hope. So they bring Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to this place and begin to educate them, feed them in the king's palace, Hoping to to weaken them, to take them away from their God, so they, they would begin to commit to things that do not matter. Begin to have this different mindset and say, you know what, maybe my homeland isn't that great. Maybe the God that I grew up loving and serving isn't really there. This world looks a lot better. And that was their hope. And they did this in a lot of different ways. And it really is so true, some tactics of the Babylonians that really Satan uses for you and me. So just a couple kind of subpoints, if you will, on this two weeks in a row. Don't hold this against me with sub points, okay? The first one is, think about this. The seduction of Babylon, one of their, their methods or tactics was physical isolation to take you away from what's comfortable, to take you away from what's commonplace, to take you away from your support system, to take you away from what is your foundation. They wanted you to compromise your faith by being pulled in a different direction. The best way I can think and illustrate this, at least in my own personal life, is I remember being so strong in my faith as a senior in high school, and then you go off to college. And mom and dad are no longer there to hold your hand. Not that my parents were there to hold my hand because they're not believers. But the thing is, is that I go off. There is no accountability. I don't know anybody here. What's stopping me from partying? What's stopping me from having sex? What's stopping me from not going to church? What's stopping me? Man, I see everybody else on campus. They're having a good old time. And this happens so much. I can't tell you, when we did student ministry for so many years, oftentimes they go and, they don't own their faith. It's their mom and dad's faith. And students, they get their, their faith is challenged. They're away from what they know is normal and their foundation, and they turn from God. Satan uses that for you and I. In a world that we live in and compromise, he wants to isolate you. Scripture promises, says the devil is, is like a roaring lion, lion waiting to devour and I, I always use this example because I'm just a visual learner, but I always think of the animal planet when you see this group of gazelle or zebras and, the, and you know, you have a guy with a really awesome accent, you know, commentating in the back. And, and then you see these lions that are prowling and they're w- waiting for their next meal. What's their tactic? They go after the weakest zebra or gazelle. They isolate it from the pack and the herd and they take it down. Satan does that with you and me. As we're pushed to compromise, as we're weakened, one of the tactics, and I say this, not in a legalistic manner. I really mean this in a practical pastoral encouragement. This often happens when there's no longer a commitment to church attendance, to biblical community, to be surrounded with other believers. I can't tell you, I'm just saying it's a fact. I have seen people say, you know what? We're, we're, they're, they're here, you know, every other week. Then they're here once a month. Then they're here for Christmas and Easter. And I, I, I'm not saying that church attendance is the end all be all. But then if what you know is, hey, we have this tournament on Sunday. We have this, we're going out of town for here. And listen, I, I get it. I'm not saying, you know, there's no reward in heaven for perfect attendance at church, all right? We all get sick and have vacations, but what I'm saying is it needs to be a priority because oftentimes that's how it starts and people walk away from any kind of relationship with Jesus. Satan uses physical isolation for us to compromise our convictions and our faith to then make uh, a commitment to something that is, isn't of any value And the Babylons were great at that. The second thing that the Babylonians did and our world does, Satan, the enemy uses, is what I would say is kind of mental influence or mental skewing or mental indoctrination. That might be a little harsh. But our world communicates so many different messages to you and me about what this looks like, what life is supposed to look like, how you're supposed to parent, how you're supposed to be a good neighbor, how you're supposed to do all of these things. And I I don't say this. This is not a, I don't know, lack of a better term, political statement on homeschooling, public school, private school. Education is good or bad. And what we are, the information that you and I possess and how we are learning as adults and how we're teaching our kids about the world that we live in and their worldview as Christians is something that we need to take super seriously and we need to be careful as believers that we're not indoctrinated by what fox news says or cnn says or what facebook says or what social media says about our identity and the world that we live in over what scripture says about us and if we are teaching our kids hey listen I heard it on Fox, I heard it on CNN, I read it here, I, I saw it on social media, and we're proclaiming that truth greater than God's word to our kids, their worldview will be one that is not based on scripture. It'll be based on opinions. And I don't care what, which way you, <laughs> you like or whatever, they're all, they're all skewed and have all kind of agendas. They're news outlets, they're of the world sound like a grumpy old man right now. <laughs> but it's all right. You know, I'm like, I'll tell you the news. Stop getting your news from Facebook, kids. It's of the devil, you know. <laughs> but we have to be careful, all right? The greatest truth that we should be educating and, and information that we should be sharing is who God is and that standard of truth. And Daniel understood that even in the midst of a crazy society, the greatest thing that he had learned is who God is. And here's the third in closing. Is that Babylon did this. Our world, our enemy does this. As a tactic to seduce us is identity alteration. Now, this happens in two ways and we see this. And I got to go really quick. I was joking with the teaching team. I felt like this is like a one-hour message, Okay. <clears throat> Here's how they worked. So if you noticed, the very first thing that happens um, at the, um, in verse 6 and 7 is that the chief of eunuchs changes their names. Now think about this in culture. In culture, all around the world, names are really, really important. Whether it's a family name or your name has meaning, I feel like America is like the only world that, or country that's like, what's your name mean? I don't know. My parents saw it in, in a book, right? Full disclosure, we were in Jerusalem and the tour guide was like, hey, D- Dustin, what, what does your name mean? And I'm like, you know what? To be honest, my parents named me after Dusty Rhodes, the, uh, the wrestler, Okay, that just shows how redneck I am. You know what I'm talking about. Four, 400 pound, American dream, tower power. And if you know who I'm talking about, you're my people, all right? <laughs> so if not, I, the, the guy was like, I have no clue who that is. And I had to Google it, right? And show him a picture and he just laughed, which I would too, right? My parents' first date was to a wrestling match. So anyway, luckily my mom kind of won because my dad wanted to call me Dusty. My mom said, let's call him Dustin. That's where I got my name. But in Jewish culture, like around the world, their names were powerful. Daniel meant, God is my judge. Hananiah meant, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is like God? Who can compare to God? Azariah means, the Lord helps. And they had this identity change that as soon as they get into Babylon, the the chief of the eunuchs said, no, 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 no. There is going to be no connection between you and God. So we're going to strip you of your identity. That's not who God created you to be. You're going to be who we want you to be. You're going to to compromise your identity. So now, Daniel, you are going to be known as Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect my life. Bel being a pagan false god. Hananiah, you're going to be called Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god, Ray. Mishael, You're going to be called Meshach, who is like Aku, another pagan false god. Azariah, you're going to be called Abednego, a servant of Nebo, another pagan god. And so they changed their identity in their names. They stripped them of that and said, that's not who you really are. Think about the world that we live in. How often is it that's not who you really are? That's not who God designed you to be. Let's compromise in that. Then the Babylonians take it a step further. What we see is that the chief of the eunuchs named them, meaning they were eunuchs themselves and working in the king's palace, culturally speaking, if any man was going to be in the king's palace to make sure that that man does not have an affair on the queen, they are castrated. So they have an identity alteration in their manhood. Think about this. They didn't teach you that in Sunday school right Daniel and Lions den all right <laughs> but it's true and so the Babylonians are like we're going to ship you of everything we want you to learn like us be like us talk like us eat like us and Daniel says it says that he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank here's here's a point I want you to understand this morning is that compromise To God's word is a slow death to spiritual death. Let me say that again. Compromise to God's word. When you begin to let other things creep in of this world, it is a slow death to spiritual death. Praise God for Daniel's testimony that he stood firm. Here's the third point. I'm going to go through this really quick. You will thrive. We're going to see this unpack in the weeks to come. You will thrive when you are committed to being close to God. It's a no-brainer. When you are close to God, when you're committed to God, when you're in his word, when you're committed to corporate worship, when you're in biblical community, when you understand, when you trust, even when the world around us is falling apart, you thrive. God uses you. And here's what we see starting in verse nine. It says, God gave Daniel favor. And compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age, so that you would endanger my head with the king? So he says, if I change your diet, you're going to lose some weight. You're going to look scrawny. Then my head is on a platter with the king. And so verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the, um, who ate the king's food. They ate vegetables and drank water and gained weight. I knew I didn't. Uh, diets were bad. But think about this. So then it said, so the steward took away their food and wine uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. They looked better than the, the people who were eating the king's food. And as for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them and among all of them, None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Needless to say, he was there through the whole thing for 70 years. He found favor. He took a stand. God had his back. He trusted the Lord in all circumstances. We're going to see that. And here's the perspective that I want us to end on. All throughout this, it starts at the very beginning. Daniel says, the Lord gave. The Lord gave the kingdom of Jerusalem over to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave me favor. And it was a perspective to say, it might be hard. This world might be broken, but I trust God. He's in control of all things. So just as He gave to me, I'm going to give to Him. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Do you trust God enough that no matter what you're going through right now, no matter how you look at our world and say, man, uh, this is hard? Do you trust God with all things? Or have you compromised your faith, even just a little? Evaluate, reflect. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come to you with all kinds of different thoughts about the world that we live in, but we also have to evaluate ourselves and who we are. And Father, as we look at our lives, as we self-reflect and to honestly evaluate, are there areas in our life where we have compromised our faith? That we've isolated ourselves or, or maybe we have, we have found our identity in other things than you. Maybe we haven't been renewed in our mind with your word, but instead have let the world speak into us. Father, I pray that you bring those things to light and you convict us this morning. And that, Father, as you do those things in us right here and right now, God, we just want to give to you. We want to free ourselves and give those things to you to live for you wholly, to live for you in a way that is fully committed, that you have everything, that we're not holding back, compromising to fit in or to look good in this world, but God, that we are sold out, followers of you, in a world that's crumbling and a world that tries to seduce. Allow us and our greatest passion to be you, It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's close in worship together. If you need prayer, I'll be down front. If you wanna talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus or even take a step in baptism, we'd love to talk to you about that this morning. Let's worship.